Scott Show. I'm Scott Prather. Coming up a little later this hour, we'll hit on last night's NBA playoff games. In the 8 o'clock hour, Louisiana Raging Cajun assistant coach Anthony Babino will join me over the phone line from Houston. Cajuns took on Rice last night. They'll take on Rice again tonight. But joining me now, as promised, one of my favorite guests. You guys have heard him on our airwaves the last couple of years. He uh, continues to uh, raise his profile. He is one of the two hosts of the uh, Conduct Detrimental podcast. He is a sports attorney. And he is Dan Lust, our guest right now. Good morning, Dan. How's life? How are you? Scott, I am good. Um, we'll say uh, the world of sports uh, continues to keep me busy, but busy is good. So uh, all good over here. You know, one of the reasons you're my favorite guest is in, in dealing with sports, it doesn't matter what day of the year it is. There's always going to be at least one story that you can dig up that has to do with the legal side of sports. It's 24 seven, 365. And oftentimes it's, it's a lot more than, than one. And there's a number right now that have my interest, have the audience's interest. And, and it's why I wanted to bring you on, but for anyone listening that doesn't follow Dan, uh, go follow him on Twitter at sports law lust. And if you want to follow uh, the Conduct Detrimental Twitter handle. It is at Con Detrimental. And just a lot of really good information and insight, Dan. And I think I want to start let – me, let me just start with, with Alvin Kamara because, you know, Saints running back, arguably the best player on the team, a guy that is vitally important to him. And, you know, a couple of months ago when he allegedly beat a man in Las Vegas outside of a strip club – you know, fans are, they kind of read the report and then they started thinking, okay, what's this mean for Kamara and his future? Uh, court date's been pushed back. Uh, Two-part question to start, Dan. One, what do you think Kamara is facing legally from here on out? And two, what do you think he's facing from the NFL and how they may approach this in terms of conduct? Yeah, I guess there's, there's two parts of it. So uh, for those that don't know, obviously, uh, Kamara was charged with a felony relating to that incident. But, uh, you know, with the busy offseason uh, between uh, some trades with wide receivers moving and, uh, you know, a lot of stuff uh, you know, on, the, on the legal front, um, you know, even, even this past week, you got another uh, Raiders story, which I don't know with the Raiders president being dismissed from the team. Uh, the NFL's very busy landscape has kind of pushed this story um, to the back. Now, that said... It's a felony criminal case involving a very high-profile player who's a Pro Bowl running back, Alvin Kamara. So, you know, when, when guys are charged with felonies, that usually uh, results in some type of suspension. Obviously, um, felony or even any type of criminal charge is not required for a suspension, but just the way the numbers play out. If a charge results, usually a suspension falls or, or works, right? Sometimes guys get released. But uh, a player like Kamara... I think it'd be very surprising if he got released. Not surprising if he got a suspension. So, yeah, this hearing gets postponed, uh, I think, about a week or so at this point. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, we have two dual processes playing out, right? We have the criminal court playing out uh, and then, uh, you know, the NFL level playing out. And then maybe, right, if a civil lawsuit results, if the victim here initiates a civil case, you could have a third level. So, yeah, I think we're just seeing the beginning of this, um, you know, and, and no, no real time frame as to when this will get resolved. But, uh, you know, as they say, Scott, the wheels of justice turn very slowly. Yeah, no question. And, you know, the, the way that Saints fans view Roger Goodell, I think is the way most fans do, right? Judge, jury, executioner, the appeals process. But having gone through Bounty Gate 10 years ago and 
Sean Payton's entire season suspension and then Goodell having, I guess, the process taken away from him uh, as a, you know, because it continued to drag out and then Paul Tagliu stepped in. It was such a long thing and, and I think fans realize a lot of times it's it's more about what the NFL wants to put out in terms of image and PR as opposed to what actually happened, right? We care very much about this and so here is this punishment. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think a lot of things some kind of suspension, no matter what, whether it's two games, whether it's six games, I, if if there was a a clear denominator or dogma rather from for NFL conduct policies, maybe fans would know this. But all they can do is keep asking the questions. The reality is, Dan, we're not going to know until the NFL decides they want to make that announcement. Yeah, and I, and I think people should pay attention to the landscape. Right, a lot of this stuff is optics. A lot of it's precedent. You know, the, the big suspension that I think is that, you know, at least us in the legal space are waiting to see is the Deshaun Watson suspension. Uh, obviously, it's completely different. Uh, there's no criminal charges there. It's uh, 20-plus civil cases. But I think uh, word in the street is that a suspension will come. So it's just, um, you know, it's optics at a certain point. Um, I, I can expect the suspension for Kamara. Um, you know, obviously, there's a, there's a videotape involved, so it's a little bit harder to dispute those charges, whereas a guy like Watson is – he said, she said type deal. So you can see how he would kind of contest, uh, you know, those accusations. But, you know, once the Watson suspension comes, if it does, uh, I think that's going to shape the, uh, you know, whoever's waiting in line for NFL suspension. I think the league is kind of prioritizing uh, the Watson case. So we'll see. Um, I think once that domino falls, we'll see, uh, you know, all these other investigations start to take shape. Sports attorney Dan Lust, our guest, ESPN Lafayette. You talk about optics. Let's head to Major League Baseball. Trevor Bauer, uh, 324 game suspension. Uh, I'll be honest, I did not see that coming. I know that, as you know, as it relates to, for instance, the Deshaun Watson case that you just brought up, right? Regardless of what a court says, um, you know, it doesn't mean that a player is totally exonerated, whether it be from the public eye or whether it be from uh, their employer and and what they discover. Were you surprised at the length of Bauer's suspension, and do you feel like he has any chance with his appeal? Well, two things. The baseball's domestic violence policy was created in August of 2015, and, and under that policy, um, there haven't been that many suspensions. Uh, I guess the number is, is relative, but it's been about 15. So in the history of suspensions under the domestic violence policy, the longest suspension had been a full season. So we're just talking about precedent. Um, I think you would set one year as the maximum because some of these incidents have resulted in criminal charges. Um, you know, maybe Bauer, I don't, I don't know if Bauer is the highest profile player that's made it to that list. Uh, we've seen guys, uh, you know, like Aroldis Chapman, very, very big closure um, on the list. Other big names uh, have been there. Um, so I was, I was surprised to see two years, particularly because, you know, the, the incident that people you know, are kind of pointing to was one that a, uh, a judge in, in California threw out. And said that um, you know the petition. I think she, the judge there, used the term was materially misleading, which is a fancy way of saying like, you know, not that credible. So I found it odd that the two-year suspension would be based on an incident that a judge said was you know, seemingly not credible. I thought that was interesting, and and I made the comment at the time, maybe there are some other incidents and allegations that we don't know about. Um, and then what kind of transpired in the next 24 hours is yes. Actually, Major League Baseball spoke to another accuser that we did not know about who, um, you know, was maybe a few years prior, I think 2013, 2014. So it certainly surprised me at the time, but as more facts started to come out, it made a little bit more sense. Um, you know, and Scott, you asked me about the chances of success on appeal. 
I think Major League Baseball probably was, uh, you know, it feels strong that they were able to suspend him for something. Um, I still think they're going to have trouble, and the standard here is just cause. They're going to have trouble convincing, uh, I don't know, the public, me, I don't know, you know, um, that that Trevor Bauer, a guy that was not charged with anything criminally, was worthy of the longest suspension in the history of the sport. Um, you know, unless there's some new details that came out that we didn't really know about, two years, right, double the length of any other suspension prior, uh, you're going to have to back that up. So um, under the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement, they're really not allowed to be transparent. So, you know, we'll see what, what comes out in the, in, the, uh, in the media. But, you know, the, the leaks are really not allowed in this particular context. So uh, Manfred's fighting transparency as much as he's actually fighting this appeal. So we'll see what comes out. I think that's the harder part, to show that two years was a valid and just suspension. And, you know, he's Bauer is a guy that's always pretty vocal. I doubt he's going to go quietly into the night unless there was some other information that the league got a hold of with a witness that he doesn't want to come out. But it feels like at 31 years old, if he were to serve this whole thing, I mean, Cy Young winner, he wouldn't be throwing a pitch in a game again until, you know, April of 2024. You go nearly three years uh, you start approaching your mid-30s, in some ways it could feel like a, a baseball death sentence for him. So, you know, I don't know that this story is going to continue to draw the headlines that maybe some in the NFL were, but I, I think it's far from over right now. I imagine, you know, at some point we're going to hear more from Bauer and probably more from Major League Baseball. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we, we spoke a little bit about Deshaun Watson and Alvin Kamara. This two-year suspension will put a lot of pressure on Goodell, I, I would think, to at least, at least think twice about issuing a longer suspension. Because if he came out and issued one game for Deshaun Watson, obviously different cases, different allegations. But Manfred sent a very strong message, right? And again, uh, you know, Trevor Bauer doesn't even have any civil case that's pending against him. Deshaun Watson has 20. So we're trying to figure out what Kamara's going to get. You have to look at Bauer. Bauer's going to influence, I would think, Watson, even though they're different sports. And then I think Watson sets the stage for the next level of um, NFL suspension. So certainly a couple dominoes to watch. And Lust, our guest at Sports Law Lust on Twitter, if you want to follow him there. He uh, is one of the two hosts of Conduct Detrimental, a, uh, a podcast on the sports when uh, sports and law meet, right? The intersection of sports and law. And uh, it's great stuff. He and Daniel Wallach do it together. Uh, you mentioned Goodell and kind of maybe the pressure one sport can put on another. Let me circle back to the NFL for a moment because I have a few more questions for you from that sport. And the Raiders president earlier this week, uh, Dan Ventrell, he was fired and alleged that he went to the owner and said, hey, there's some pretty, you know, it's. I think it was maybe, what did he use the word, hostile work environment? Um, he's claiming that's why he was fired. What can you tell us about this story? Because uh, it had made big headlines down here, but what what does this mean in the in the NFL world? Yeah, I mean, I think people are kind of slow to pick the story up because we don't really know any details yet. But if you read through the breadcrumbs, um, you know, Ventrelli, who is uh, you know, I think an 18 year veteran of the organization, general counsel, he was appointed the president of the team. Um, you know, he he issues the statement that he said uh, he was fired. Uh, from the position, and he alleges he was fired for reporting these allegations of a hostile work environment to the NFL. That Mark Davis, uh, I guess, I guess was involved somehow in these allegations. And once Mark Davis found out that this guy, you know, Ventrelli went around his back right to Goodell and NFL HQ, was fired. Right, and there's certainly protections. You can't fire someone for uh, reporting toxic workplace or you know uh, a hostile workplace. 
um, you know, to, to somebody else, be it a federal entity or whatnot. The, the part that I read very closely in, in Ventrelli's statement was that he wanted to protect female employees. So then my, you know, my mind started going, and I go, listen, I don't think it's so much of a leap here to think that we are dealing with something, maybe what looks like uh, what happened with Washington with Dan Snyder, right? Toxic workplace, uh, sexual harassment, and sexual assault allegations over at Washington. Maybe that's what's going on at, at the Raiders HQ, because, you know, after the stuff happened with Snyder, I'm like, yeah, this is likely going to lead to some other allegations. Then you saw the stuff happen. Um, you know, the allegations come out with the Dallas Cowboys and now you know, the Raiders. So, um, you know, people should be paying attention to it. And, and obviously, um, Scott, you know this. Congress is investigating, um, you know, the Washington commanders and Dan Snyder at a federal level for what's going on at their work site. So I don't think it would shock anyone if the Cowboys and now the Raiders get brought into those federal investigations. So people should be paying attention to it. Um, you know, you have three teams all in different markets with these type of allegations. All of a sudden, right, that's a national story. So um, I think the NFL, you know, uh, fans should be on notice. Congress is now, you know, uh, poking around the NFL landscape. So, yeah, I think it's a, it could be a big story. I mean, uh, we'll see what comes of it. But, yeah, a guy, a high-profile guy, general counsel, president, being uh, fired after reportedly, you know, reporting these allegations to the NFL – uh, yeah, uh, it could be some tea to them. The guy has retained his own lawyer, so yeah, we'll see what comes of it. Obviously, a story to, to closely monitor. Sometimes the NFL's partners, not to say that they won't report on something, and they do, they point it out, but they're not going to have, say, uh, a show of their talking heads debating it, right? So they'll give it some coverage, but won't sensationalize it. And they'll say, look, we're just we're doing our job, it's not this. And maybe they're trying to be a good partner. I mean, if if you want to define good a certain way. Anyway, that's just my thoughts on it. But last thing on, on NFL owners, you mentioned Dan Snyder, obviously, in Congress. For a while, look, Washington fans would love nothing more than the, this guy to be forced to sell the team. I mean, his own fan base can't stand him. And I always said, boy, it takes a whole lot to force an owner to do that. And then when the, the news came out of him, uh, cooking the books, so to speak, and maybe taking some money away from other owners. I said this this could be something. Add on to you know the federal investigation and the workplace environment. Dan, my question is, what would it take for Dan Snyder to be forced to be removed as the owner or forced to sell? Is that is that something that you could foresee ever happening in Washington? Yeah, I think it's it's uh, you know you could make the argument quantity versus quality. At this point, Snyder's kind of hit both, right? He has a number of allegations swirling around the team, and, you know, we've talked a little bit about, you know, sexual harassment, sexual assault, toxic workplace. You know, you name a legal controversy, and it has involved election commanders, for, for better or for worse, right? Even a lawsuit between the minority owners, it's not a good look, right? You're making the, the wrong kind of noise. Um, but I did mention this federal investigation. With Congress poking around Washington, what they ended up finding is, you know, I guess at least to them, evidence of financial improprieties that the team had stole, um, you know, at least misappropriated money that was due to other owners by cooking the books with respect to uh, how many fans were attending games. So, um, you know, there, there is some form of revenue sharing for ticket-based revenue. And the Congress at least found some evidence that Washington had two separate books, one that they gave to the NFL and then the actual book. So I think the combination of messy allegations, uh, you know, pertaining to gender, uh, you know, we'll say uh, sexual harassment type stuff with stealing money from other owners, those type of allegations, you know, it's established. And I think one or both is the right combination to, to get him removed. 
So if you're asking me, Scott, to put odds on who's going to be first to get kicked out, right, uh, Dan Snyder or Mark Davis with the Raiders or Jerry Jones with Dallas, I think Snyder's in the, in the class all by himself. So I, I think, you know, if there was some type of that next owner to get kicked out of the league, I think Snyder's in a tier alone. I don't know if that number has a minus sign or a plus sign in front of it for our, our betting people. Uh, but I think certainly he's he's got to be uh, the leader in the clubhouse. He's on board now, right? And that's saying something. Um, Dan Lust, our guest, sports attorney. Uh, you've heard him all over the place and, and from time to time right here on our airwaves at ESPN Lafayette. Follow him on Twitter at Sports Law Lust. Uh, sticking with the football theme, it's for a former player, a Hall of Famer, but this story has kind of come and gone over the last couple of years. Brett Favre, Mississippi, um, is is suing him along with some former wrestlers and Ted DiBiase Sr. and Jr. Uh, million Dollar Man, ironically. Um, but, you know, Favre, who lives in Mississippi, uh, was accused of being paid a lot of money for giving speeches and not showing up. Uh, what what kind of lawsuit does the state potentially have against Favre, and, and how much trouble could he get in with this? Yeah, um, I saw the headline, and, and then Scott, you know where my, my wrestling mind works. I saw oh, yeah. three other wrestlers, and I'm like, Ted DiBiase Sr. and Jr., right? We're talking about uh, the uh, Randy Orton, uh, Cody Rhodes, and uh, Ted, Ted DiBiase Jr. legacy era. Of the WWE. legacy. I, I know, I know my, uh, my wrestling history here, so... Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a lawsuit uh, essentially by uh, the Mississippi Department of Human Services to basically claw back money. Um, so the lawsuit says the defendant squandered more than twenty million from uh, temporary assistance for needy families and poverty program. And if people have been following the story, um, you know, I think Favre had some comments that he was potentially going to give some money back. Um, just kind of you know, a messy messy level. So you know, you can't uh, you can't accept money for work that you did not do. That is a kind of textbook. Um, but the question is, what, what level do these people know, right, that they, you know, money was supposed to go someplace or that they were actually being compensated for stuff they didn't do, right? Or maybe, right, um, somebody spoke at a certain event and they were compensated more than they, than they thought they should have actually gotten. So the level of what we call in the legal field, scienter, which is a fancy word for saying knowledge of fraud, is going to come into play here. So what, what Favre knew, what DiBiase knew, what the wrestlers knew, there's other football players involved, um, you know, what they knew is certainly going to come into play here. So... Yeah, um, you know, we'll, we'll certainly see, but this is a, a messy lawsuit, and we'll see, obviously, what Mississippi had involved with this, because they were getting uh, the money, I think, uh, Harv, and these guys thought they were getting the money from a, uh, you know, uh, up-in-front up uh, business from someone from the government. So, you know, we'll see how much knowledge uh, in, it falls back on, on the, the government side of this. So, messy lawsuit, but, uh, you know, Brett Favre uh, finds himself in a, in a tough spot here. Dan Lust, our guest, sports attorney, Dan Lust. What, what, who is your, uh, your favorite wrestler of all time, Dan? Ooh, that's a tough one. I'm, I'm going to go with the Macho Man. I mean, I, I tend to quote him far yeah. more than I quote any other wrestler. I think that's a safe pick. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've been through the, the history. I, I watch all the docs. So, uh, Macho Man is held up over, over time. He's a Macho Man and maybe Flair to a certain point, but Flair has uh, become more controversial in recent years. So I, don't, I don't think I can say Flair anymore, but I'll go with the Macho Man. Yeah. Flair doesn't have to be your favorite, but he is the GOAT. I mean, there's, I don't, he, he's the best of all time, right? Jet flying, wheeling, stealing. Yeah, uh, 100%. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Bryan for me. Um, but, you know, I, I'll segue with that into I could remember Daniel Bryan at his peak. And it wasn't that long ago. You know, the yes chant was everywhere. There was a player. 
for Michigan State's football team. Don't remember his name, but he would do it a lot during football games, and they'd bring him out for basketball games, and he'd lead the crowd, and they'd get going, and you just saw yes chants all over the place. Now, WWE, if they wanted to, or in this case, AEW, you know, I know Brian did with WWE anymore, and there's probably some legalities to the yes thing, but my point is, if a wrestling corporation wanted to do an NIL deal with a student-athlete, uh, I'm sure there would be plenty of kids in college that would be like, wait, what? I'll do it for gear, right? I'll do it. It's just, you're going to put me on there? Sure, I'll promote it, right? I mean, it's, it's the, uh, the fun, the promos, all of that stuff. And as, as NIL continues to uh, pick up, and we're kind of in this phase where it's somewhat new and the NCAA can't keep up, what, what is some of the, you know, I, I was reading an article last week about comparing state laws and proposed legislation for prospective student-athletes in NIL. Dan, what are your thoughts on, on the legal current state of the name, image, likeness in college sports? And where do you think it might be, say, five to ten years from now? Yeah, so, um, you know, we just did a, uh, a special edition of our show for college sports law. I think that's the biggest story in, in our field right now. What, what the law is, in, how the law is impacting college sports, how it will impact. So we're about a year into the NIL era, um, and really what the next year will look like will really, I think, determine the fate of college sports, whether the NCAA will exist, whether the Power Five, or if you're a uh, college football junkie, maybe like the Power Two, whether those guys break off. Um, you know, for, for better or worse, um, the NCAA refused to adapt, preemptively strike. And what that led to was state governments coming in and thinking that they know how, how to legislate college sports better than the NCAA themselves. And I don't know the NCAA was not acting, so maybe action is better than inaction. And what you have now is different laws across the country. Half the states have NIL laws, half of them do not. The ones that have NIL laws are different, you know, different nuances to those. Um, and then you have the issue maybe across the country, who is enforcing this, right? There's, you can have an NIL law on the books, um, but if the state attorney general is not going to police it, the NCA is not going to police it, like, I don't know, what's the point of having these laws? So um, you, we're certainly dealing with a lot right now. And then on, on top of it, you know, this uh, transfer portal opening up, it's lent itself to these boosters, um, which have kind of like uh, formed under what we call as collectives, like these big entities really designed to pay athletes in the transfer portal to come to their particular schools or high school athletes to come to their schools, or even, you know, incumbent athletes to stay at schools. You have these boosters that are really dictating college sports, and, and maybe that's always been the case, Scott, um, but it's being done in a level um, where college sports fans are seeing it done very transparently. Um, and uh, this past week we had the commissioners of the, um, you know, the Pac-12 uh, and the SEC really petition Congress for immediate federal assistance. Can you guys come in and help us? Uh, so red alert, red sirens going off everywhere. Um, and we'll see now, you know, um, states are, are free. There's a concept called federalism, which I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but, you know, states are, are really free to do whatever they want in a particular industry or an area until the federal government comes in. That's why some states can have sports betting laws. Some states can legalize cannabis and other states, you know, just don't because, um, you know, the federal government hasn't stepped in. Uh, we are hearing talk of a federal bill coming in to try to, you know, make legislation uniform across the board, same way that uh, the, the drinking age across our country would be 21. They're trying to do that for college sports. Maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad. Maybe you're sitting here listening to this being like, I don't want the federal government involved in college sports at all. But 
whether we like it or not, college sports has a real issue that needs to be solved. That the NCAA is not going to come in and solve it. Uh, politicians, federal politicians, think that they should. So that's what we're dealing with now, and uh, you know, it, it is problematic. I'm not sure how to solve it, um, but uh, federal, uh, you know, Congress, uh, you know, those guys seeming uh, they're, they're circling here. Uh, they don't want to, they want to get their fingerprints on it all of a sudden. Yeah, I I think it's going to be one of these evolving things that they'll come up with temporary solutions that are probably just going to create some more issues and then they're going to react to it after that. I I don't I think it's going to be more reactive than proactive and maybe a decade from now they'll settle into something that works but it feels like they got a lot of work on their hands with this, Dan. Yeah, I mean there's there's no right answers. Like I've been sitting here on my soapbox for a year on like the way to solve these different state legislative issues is to have a federal law. And then I'm having people come back to me and say, "Well, why do we trust the federal government in our college sports?" And I'm like, "Well, we already have state legislatures in the in our college sports, so people are upset that uh, you know conference championships and national championships are being decided by state politicians and state-based boosters. The way to normalize that is by having a federal law. Not to say that states should be dealing with this or the federal government should be dealing with this, but we already have state legislatures in the sphere. Um, so I don't know. There, there's really no right answers, but um, I, I think you know the NCA is not doing anything. They have not done anything for ten months. So. I think creative solutions are better than no solutions because inaction by the NCAA for the last 10 months has got us here, which I think everyone can agree there's, there's a problem. We need a sheriff in town to police this. So, you know, um, if the NCAA is not going to do anything, I think someone, I think everyone feels that uh, we're, we're kind of on the ship right now and there's no one steering it. So there's no sheriff, no captain, whatever metaphor you want to use. Wow, wow, um, West. Some, yeah. Right, right. Some, some efforts are better than none. I, I, think that's a, I think we can all agree on that. Dan Lust has been our guest. Uh, great stuff as always, Dan, man. Thanks for the knowledge. Guys, give him a follow on Twitter at SportsLawLust. Check out the Conduct Detrimental podcast uh, that uh, he does, along with Daniel Wallach, and uh, where the, the sports law intersection of uh, – there's a whole lot of it in the world of sports, man. I always have questions. Dan always has answers. I appreciate the time, man. All the best. Continued success. And uh, let's chat again in the future, my friend. My pleasure, Scott. Anytime. You got it. 